Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. On episode three of My American Melting Pot, we're going to be talking about the phenomenon that is K-pop. We're going to be finding out exactly what K-pop is and what it isn't. Who are the K-pop bands we should all know about? And we're going to try to understand why K-pop has such a diverse, multicultural fan base. Joining me in conversation to break it all down is music journalist Tamar Herman. Plus, we have a real live K-pop fan with us in the studio as well. Please note that towards the end of the episode, Tamar's audio went a little wonky. You might notice a difference in sound quality, but I didn't want you to miss out on any part of this conversation. And before we get to the conversation, though, we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Sweet Revenge. Sweet Revenge, that feeling you get when the underdog wins, even though he's not supposed to. Sweet Revenge. Okay, Melting Pot community, since this will be the last episode of My American Melting Pot that airs in 2018, I thought this would be an appropriate time to look back on the year that was and select 10 memorable Melting Pot moments. Now, the selection criteria was vetted by nobody. This is just melting pot moments that I think, and I hope you'll agree, showcase America's multicultural agenda moving forward. So, counting down from 10 to 1, melting pot moment 10 through 8, colored people took over the box office. Black Panther was the highest grossing movie of 2018. Crazy Rich Asians made people realize that an all-Asian cast could sell out movie theaters. Plus, Ava DuVernay did some super-duper colorblind casting in reverse with her version of A Wrinkle in Time. Little Meg was black, her mother was biracial, and Mindy Kaling was one of the witches in the film. It was brilliant. Number seven. Not one but two Native American women were elected to Congress in November, making the first time there has ever been a Native American woman in Congress. Congrats to Democrats Sharice Davids and Deb Holland. Number six, Stan Lee dies. Now, this isn't a happy moment, but the death of the man who co-created Black Panther and utilized his platform at Marvel to fight for civil rights deserves a place on this list. Rest in peace, Stan. Rest in peace. Number five, Jay-Z and Beyonce go on the run on a tour throughout Europe and North America. It was arguably the biggest event of the summer. Number four, First Lady Michelle Obama releases her memoir, Becoming, on November 13th, and it quickly becomes the best-selling book of the entire year, selling more than two million copies. Number three, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez becomes the youngest woman to be elected to Congress at age 28. She's Puerto Rican, a socialist, and is already kicking butt in political circles. Number two, Meghan Markle integrates the British royal family with her wedding in May. She brought a gospel choir, her mama, and a black minister to preach during the ceremony, and preach he did. Number one, our number one melting pot moment also goes to Meghan Markle because she will officially be making Black the new British when she gives birth to the first officially mixed race royal in the spring of 2019. And there you have it, 10 memorable melting pot moments of 2018. If you think I missed one, tweet at me at Miss Melting Pot. Now, let's talk about K-pop. Okay, Melting Pop community, I'd like to begin by introducing our guest today. We have Tamar Herman with us, and Tamar is a K-pop columnist for a Billboard magazine, and she covers international music and media for Forbes. Her work also appears in outlets such as NBC News, Entertainment Weekly, and Vulture. Welcome to the show, Tamar. Thanks so much for having me. 
And we also have in studio a real-life K-pop fan. Isai Malia Tharps is 17 years old. He's a high school senior, and he also happens to be my son. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Isai. Thank you, Lori. So, Tamar, let's get into this conversation. We have to start with some basic information for people who might not know exactly what K-pop is. How do you define K-pop? What would you tell people who've never heard of it what K-pop is? So K-pop typically stands for Korean pop music. It's really more Korean popular music, a little different than what we think of just straight up pop as a genre in the U.S. K-pop is not a genre. K-pop is a an industry that features a lot of different types of music, a lot of different artists, a lot of variety of sounds. So it's really not a genre. It's more of an idea that like pretty much it's a codifier for the entire mainstream pop scene in South Korea, which is predominantly full of young singers known as idols. And so when we're talking about K-pop, usually it means this sort of idol music. It's often called that in South Korea itself. But we also use the term, you know, as a general codifier just to talk about general pop music from Korea. It's not so different from, you know, saying Latin music, because Latin music is just a, a regional term. It doesn't actually mean anything musically. That's a good comparison. Now, I read recently that K-pop doesn't even just mean the music, that it's also like all things Korean popular culture. So like soap operas and fashion, that all of that falls under K-pop. Is that true or is there is there a different word for when we talk about the full culture? K-pop is specifically music. I think the word that we use specifically in Korean, it's called Hallyu. And in English, it translates into Korean wave, which essentially is the ebb and flow of Korean cultural exports popularity. It started first throughout Asia, and now it's throughout the world. So that Hallyu encompasses music, movies, television, probably K-beauty would fall under it. The popularity of Korean food right now would fall under it. Esports, definitely. Esports are like the unsung hero of South Korea's cultural exports to the world. I'm like 99% sure that esports rake in more money than K-pop and I'm pretty sure also television. I could be wrong about that. Wait, I'm sorry. What are esports? Esports are video games. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Electronic sports. Got it. So who are some of the big names that people should know about? Who are like some of the most popular K-pop stars here in the United States? Well, it's impossible not to talk about BTS right now. BTS are the biggest boy band we've seen in the U.S. since One Direction, for sure. Some people will say that they're the first ever non-European or or Eurocentric boy band to ever become popular in the U.S. Yeah, they're just undeniably on top of the game. They've had two chart-topping albums here in the States. They're the first group to ever have a predominantly non-English album top the Billboard charts with their Love Yourself tier from earlier this year. And even prior to that, the last group to do that was an Italian pop opera group. So it was still very, you know, Eurocentric. Like this was the really, a, they're making so many waves for just representation in America. They're immensely popular. Like I can't, I can't emphasize enough. Like this morning, I was on the bus and like cross town New York City bus, and someone was sitting next to me with a little keychain of a character that's a tie-in to BTS, a little BT Twenty One character. It's like I run into it all the time in New York City on the subway and on the buses. Just like this is no longer a niche. BTS's fans are just a general part of American youth culture nowadays. Definitely. And who are some of the other big groups? There's a a big push right now for a lot of younger groups to try to become relevant in the U.S. So like there's NCT 127, there's Red Velvet, there's Monsta X. Um, When I talk about K-pop, I'm literally talking about hundreds of different artists and acts. So it's really hard to say exactly who's on top. But for reference, I just wrote an article for Forbes that listed the 10 best-selling acts since 2010. So groups that were formed after 2010. And on top of that were two groups that one 
EXO just surpassed 10 million physical album sales. That's entirely separate from digital. And BTS is close to 10 million. So those two are probably the most popular. Regarding other acts, there's a lot of really popular ones. 101 is really popular. 17 is really popular. Goth7 just had a huge concert tour here in the U.S., um, from female artists, probably on top of the game. Blackpink has appeared on the Billboard main charts here in the US. Red Velvet and Twice are immensely popular throughout Asia. There's kind of a disconnect between American charts and what's popular in Asia and Korea, but we're sort of seeing a little shift where they're now. I want to say there's feedback between the two. So like BTS top charts here, and so now they're topping charts over there. They were already topping charts, but not quite as as much. And Blackpink was already doing really well, but by doing really well in the US, they're doing even better in Asia. So now we see a lot more artists like Red Velvet just released a remake of this year's single from, I think it was from January, Bad Boy in English. Um, Their label mates, NCT127, just released a single in English first before the Korean version of it. We're just seeing a lot of shift into the US market. So I can't really pick a single group aside from BTS that is the most obviously recognizable and relevant to the U.S. market, but BTS is up there. (laughs) Is Blackpink a female group? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah. So BTS is a guy group. EXO is a guy group. Got seven. Those are all guy groups. Then you have the female acts. uh, So old girl groups. Blackpink is the biggest one here in the States based on charting. Uh, Red Velvet is another popular one, and they're going to have a tour here, I think, in February. Twice is this super popular mega group with nine women from Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. And they're just like so impactful that they're the only female act that can have equitable sales to male acts in Korea today. So is K-pop, would you say it's dominated by male acts or would you say that it's equally male and female in terms of popularity? It's definitely dominated by fandoms for male acts because K-pop's buying audience, so audience with buying power, tends to be predominantly female. So, you know, a lot of girls like boys, so boy bands tend to do the best, and companies recognize that, and so there is a lot more, you know, investment in boy bands. It's far easier for a boy band to tour internationally. It's far easier for a boy band to get advertisement deals. So you've completely convinced me that this is clearly a phenomenon, You've convinced me that these different groups are really, they have hit albums, they've got super fans, and I'm not even going to try to, you know, debate the merits of their music and like what makes their music so unique or anything. I'm just really fascinated by how popular they are and the diversity of their fan base. So I'm going to turn to my K-pop fan here in the studio, Isai. Why do you like K-pop? What is it about K-pop that you appreciate? So when I started liking K-pop, it was just like, I tried to impress a girl with it. So I only liked the group that she liked. And that was like a super tiny group. But now that I've explored more of K-pop, um, the main thing I like is that with most songs, they dance to it. So I can actually dance to a song without looking completely stupid because at least there's something I can base it off of. Mm-hmm. But also... um. I like their hair colors. I also like that in the typical K-pop group, like in BTS, you have rappers and vocalists, which wasn't really seen much before in like American or like British pop groups. Also, I think their fashion is amazing. And like all their hair colors, just like it's visually appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And I tend to like base a lot of my outfits off of lots of K-pop idols, especially BTS. And it also... For me, it was almost like a message. Like, BTS is obviously different than a lot of other boy bands. And it was almost like a message that, like, you can be different and it's okay. And I just, I also love the music and I just love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. That was, like, the perfect explainer of what <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what it all is. So, Tamar, are, are you a fan as well as a K-pop chronicler for Billboard? Uh, yeah, I mean, it came first. It's not a case of what happened first, the chicken or the egg. I was a K-pop fan. So what uh, made you a fan? Sp- what what do you like about it? Um, I like, uh, like he said, a lot of the uh, diversity about it. Not like racial diversity, but that there's a lot of 
incorporation of other elements. It's not just the music, it's the music video, it's the entertainment industry that it's tied into. There's always different, diverse amounts of content, different sounds, different styles. Uh, fashion in the US tends to follow Korea fashion at this point. Like when I, I haven't been to Korea in a while, but when I go to Korea or when I'm watching a Korean television show, I know that those fashion trends, some of them are going to be here in the US next year. So I got into K-pop. I discovered it in high school and I really liked it. It was something different. It was really good pop music. America's pop scene has not really changed in the past decade. We have a few new names and a few new artists, but largely America's music industry is stagnant. Beyonce has been around for over a decade and she's still on top. Um, Ariana Grande has been around for a few years now and she's still on top. Korea, while there are groups that do stay on top for a long time, there's always something new. There's always a new sound, a new song, a new style of music that someone's playing with. It's kind of in a weird state right now where I don't feel this necessarily, but K-pop is really, really experimental. There have been a few songs this year that are pretty experimental, but like some of the biggest hits from K-pop, like I'm thinking of particularly the one that we always talk about is 2013's I Got a Boy from Girls' Generation. It literally splits its genres like every few seconds. It just jumps around and creates this really epic soundscape. Really, K-pop is captivating, and it also, I mentioned this before, but K-pop, it's the music, but it's also the music videos, and it's also the entertainment shows that these pop stars, these idols, feature on in South Korea, and it's also the television shows that they feature in as they act in. It's the web series, it's the live streams that they do, where they're all adding to this story of who these pop stars are. And nowadays it's so <laughs> intense that even the music videos like BTS is, is a great example. Other groups that have done this are uh, like EXO, Monster X. They have world building that goes into the music videos. I'm a huge like sci-fi and fantasy nerd. <laughs> and, and for this to be a thing in K-pop where they're literally making music videos that are telling a story sometimes that are autobiographical of these stars and sometimes that are just, you know, a totally different universe. I don't know. It's just, there's always something new in K-pop. It's never quiet. It's never feels to me that I'm going to be bored when I'm looking at K-pop. Uh, I've been into this since 2008 and yeah, I don't know. I think it's just a really fascinating industry that really resonates with a lot of people because these are so well produced. And I say that with the thought that it's very un-American right. to revel in that. Let's let's talk about that for a second. That's actually what just fascinates me because here we have a country. I mean, the United States, we are not a country known for embracing foreign cultures. Our citizens are not multilingual. We have some really anti-immigrant, anti-foreign sentiment, particularly right now. And here you have these acts who don't even sing in English and have a culture that's so, you know, different from American culture. I mean, that's kind of what makes it so compelling, like you just said. What do you attribute the popularity that K-pop has in the United States, particularly, and even pulling the fan base apart a little bit? Because their fan base is really diverse. I know that the Latino market is the like second largest ethnic group in terms of their fans after Asians. I know there's a lot of black and brown people, teens who love K-pop. What do you think is driving that fandom in such diverse circles? One of the biggest elements about K-pop's rise in the States is the social media aspect of it. And I don't say this lightly because it could sound really derivative to say, oh, it's just a social media fan. Like, it's not real people. It's just people on the internet, which is not the case because people on the internet are real people. But K-pop's rise in the U.S. really started in 2008, 2009, just as YouTube was really kicking off and just as social media platforms became embedded in our lives. And then it surged again as smartphones really rose to prominence in this country, which was, it was almost the same time. Like I'm thinking I got my first smartphone in I think end of 2010, but the whole nature of K-pop is that it can be consumed largely in digital spaces. So much of it is digital. Obviously there's offline merchandise, but even, even for fan behavior, you can do something that costs absolutely no money and boost a band's 
presence in the industry, which is streaming. You can watch their music videos. You can stream their songs. You can interact with, (laughs) interact, quote unquote, with these idols through live streams. Like Korea even has an app called Naver V Live, which is dedicated to live streaming. And it's predominantly used by K-pop stars. There is just this huge, complex world of K-pop in digital spaces that I believe really resonates with a lot of people throughout the world and in America nowadays in this globalized day and age. And it's really, I've never met a K-pop fan who's blatantly racist. Like it's a phenomena that calls to people who in this day and age, in this country and countries throughout the world want to connect with other people. They want to be part of something like the two prominent ways of getting into K-pop is, you know, normal, like the basic thing of a friend introducing you to it. And the other is just discovering it somehow on the internet and getting swept into the like people often describe it as being like dragged and like pulled into the bunny hole. Like it's like Alice in Wonderland discovering this whole world that is out there. And I think that it really resonates with, yes, millennials and younger, but just general audiences nowadays who want to take in this really digital focused entity and interact with people who are like-minded about this entity, but who are really different. So like a lot of my really close friends I've met through K-pop and they're all from different walks of life, like life. Like I'm an Orthodox Jew from New York and I have friends from across the country from all different walks of life from around the world at this point who have come out of my fondness for K-pop and my kind of ridiculous spiral into pursuing this as my career. Let me just um, let me just throw it over to Isai for a second. Isai, how do you identify ethnically? Um I'm biracial. I am Spanish and black. And when I say that, people think that equals Puerto Rican, but it doesn't. <laughs> like my father's from Spain. My mom's like black from America. But what about your friends in Do you have friends who listen to K-pop or are you kind of on your own with that? And if you do have friends who listen to K-pop, what ethnicity are they? And do you notice any kind of trends of what types of friends of yours listen to K-pop? So the school that I go to is primarily white and Asian. Mm -hmm. So I started into K-pop my freshman year in high school. I'm a senior now, but my two girl best friends, they were both Asian and they loved K-pop and we like, we listened to it every day. But then as we grew up, like throughout the years, they start listening to it like less and less. Like they start to listen to just BTS. And I'm like, you know, that's okay because BTS is still K-pop. Mm-hmm. But um, they just stopped listening to it now. And like now they listen to like more rap music and they're like K-pop's more childish now. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, okay, that's so weird. And then I have like a few other kids I know that are younger than me. And most of them are Asian at my school mm-hmm. who also enjoy K-pop. But um, it seems like, for the kids at my school at least, as they grew up, their love for K-pop kind of dwindled. Hmm. I don't know if that was what people was telling them, because as it got popular, more people started to dislike it as well. Mm. So the a lot of people started to like dislike it because of what their friends were saying. Now, I never stopped. But, um, <laughs> You're a diehard fan. Exactly. A lot of my friends stopped liking it, or like if they either stopped completely or just listened to BTS now. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is really gonna sound bad, but like I want to be like, oh, they're such like fake fans. Exactly. But it's obviously, <laughs> like it's 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 definitely you know your taste changes as you get older. But there is such a I really hate this stigma towards K-pop and just general towards boy bands right. and things that obviously you're not a teenage girl, but things that are stereotyped as things that teenage girls are the only fans of. Like <laughs> it makes me so mad. I tweet about this like maybe once every week, about reading something where some writer, usually a male one, often a male white guy, describes K-pop fans as screaming, usually followed by the word fangirls. And it drives me absolutely crazy because there is a stigma towards things that women, predominantly women, like. And K-pop is one of those things. And it's so, I don't know, it's, it's sad that people maybe are tugged away from it because of how they feel others are looking at them. and That's actually a really good point. And that segues to another question I had, because there is some stigma. There is some challenge that I know that other Black fans, they get called out for listening to K-pop because there's accusations that Korean people are racist or that there have been these incidents of Korean pop stars wearing 
blackface or making references to people with darker skin not being as attractive, you know, issues of colorism. What do you say to people who accuse the entire genre of K-pop as being racist? Obviously, like, I'm not black. I'm pretty freaking white until someone finds out that I'm Jewish. And I think that a lot of the criticism is valid because there is a lot of appropriation going on. There is a lot of pulling from culture, specifically Black American culture, that isn't really recognized and acknowledged. And there's a lot of missteps related to, you know, hair and blackface, as you mentioned, and just really inappropriate instances. But I think that for most fans, I don't feel, and maybe someone will feel that, you know, I'm, I'm being an apologist, but I feel that for most fans, they can recognize that there's a disconnect between our life here in the U.S. and how race is discussed in the U.S. versus how the culture of Korea and the race discussion that they have in Korea. And obviously that doesn't make it okay, but like you can't force the ideology of American culture and debates that we're having right now in this country on another culture. So when people ask me about it, like it's it's wrong. There is terrible appropriation happening at some points. Like there have been not enough instances, I think, that have received acknowledgement from the Korean entertainment industry and apologies from the Korean entertainment industry. Like it would be, you know, it'd be great if they just, you know, flat out said like, oh, sorry that our guy wore dreads in one music video. Like, sorry that our band did blackface on an SNL skit. There's not enough of that. I understand that you're saying that there's a difference. Well, one, that there is always room for improvement and there's room for apology, but Also, we can't necessarily hold the same standards for racial awareness for a culture that does not have the native Black population. I think Isai wanted to jump in and say something. So I know a lot of people that dislike something will find a lot of ways to tear it apart. And I think that's what people do. If someone doesn't like K-pop, they'll look at all the bad things or the good things. And yeah, in the K-pop industry, there is a lot of racism. But here in America as well, there has been a lot of celebrities and singers that have um, gone to jail, have said racist things. I mean, there's a tape of Justin Bieber saying the inner repeatedly, and he's had dreads before, and he's still one of the top-making male artists in America. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm not trying to justify the racism in K-pop, but I'm just saying people will look at this one thing and be like, oh, it's bad. But in America, there have been so many other instances of racism, scandals. So many celebrities have gotten arrested and are still in jail. Um, they're looking at that one thing for K-pop and be like, oh, it's racist, I won't listen to it. They'll assume that every single group's racist if, like, one thing has happened and look, lump all of them together. And if, like, one person of one group says something bad, then automatically the whole genre is, like, looked down upon. So, so the idea that there is cultural appropriation, that there are instances of racism within K-pop, obviously they exist and nobody is, I mean, you can just do a Google search and it's so easy to find those things. But I think Isai makes a really good point that that shouldn't be the thing that we define all of K-pop with. I mean, it's not every single group. It's not every single um, song. And I I feel like um, what's still so interesting to me is that the fan base, you know, the true fans, not the fake fans like you guys are talking about, but the true fans. No, they're not fake. They're just not as dedicated. The true fans are really, I mean, you have a lot of black women who love K-pop and you have a lot of Latinos who love K-pop and you have a lot of Asians who are not Koreans who love K-pop. And I think that we have to look at the fans. I mean, I think we have to look at K-pop as doing something that is attractive to so many people of color, there's something there that is appealing to people across racial and ethnic groups. Tamar, tell me a little bit about, I think I saw on your Twitter page, the photo you have is of Junior, what is it? What is Super, it? Junior. Super Junior. Super Junior, oh, right. Yeah, so, my Twitter like, header. Yeah, Super Junior did a collaboration with a Latina artist, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be an example of, you know, K-pop has a lot of Latino fans. I know they do really well in Latin America as well. Talk to me a little bit about the idea of collaboration and where K-pop is trying to connect with their multicultural audiences. Yeah, I mean, so this is something that K-pop has done for a long time is localization. And Super Junior is actually the group that was the first group to feature a non-Korean member. They had a Chinese member named uh, 
in Korea, he went by Han Kyung, and in China, he's known as Han Gang. And in 2005, they were the first K-pop group to really have somebody on their team who wasn't Korean or of Korean descent, because there were a lot of, a few Korean Americans at that point. But Super Junior, their company, SM Entertainment, recognized that, you know, K-pop was resonating with audiences in China and that there was a huge market there. So they, from a very business perspective, they recognized that to localize, they needed to incorporate somebody who is fluent and familiar with the culture. And so they debuted as this huge boy band with 12 members, and one of them was Chinese, and they were the first act to really pursue the market. They had a subgroup called Super Junior M, which incorporated another two guys, um, Henry Lau and Jomi, and they pursue the Chinese market by singing in Mandarin. This is now commonplace in Korea for artists to pursue other markets. Um, Super Junior, just because we were talking about them, they were the ones who I'm saying like really led things into China. In Japan, you had BOA and TVXQ really to this day still being immensely impactful in Japan because they went to Japan and, you know, they learned Japanese and they sang in Japanese and they localized by working with these artists. So, so two nowadays we're seeing, again, Super Junior is like picking up their career. And my friend Alexis Hodan Gastelum, she wrote a really great piece for Remescla, where it's just like essentially highlighting how they did everything right. Like, I think a lot of the conversations around K-pop are about cultural appropriation, when sometimes we could also be discussing how it's cultural diffusion. My high school history teacher would love that I just used that phrase. <laughs> but with this case, with Super Junior's song, uh, with Leslie Grace Lociento, they incorporated a Latina pop star. They incorporated Latin producers. They had different songwriters working together to make sure that the lyrics in Spanish and English and the Korean all matched each other so that it was one cohesive song. And then they did it again a few months ago with Otrevez with Rake. And they've had multiple tours in Latin America and other artists are going into Latin America. And these fans, back to the discussion of why... Why are fans from different cultures who aren't necessarily Korean, who aren't necessarily the audience people would expect for K-pop, appreciate K-pop? I think some of it comes from it's a different, it's a counterculture essentially to mainstream America and Western media. So like personally, when I found it in high school, I remember being really enthralled because it was relatively clean. There wasn't, like, sex being pushed on me every second, which, like, is funny that I thought that because K-pop is very sexualized um, in some ways. But it's kind of done in, like, a cleaner Disney version of sexuality than we see in the Western world most of the times. And I remember really as, like, this little, like, Jewish kid from New York, like, that resonated with me. Like, I didn't have to, like, think about finding a non-explicit version of a K-pop song because there was no quote-unquote dirty language in it and at the time that was really appealing to me and I've talked with a few other friends and a lot of like my closest friends who are K-pop fans like third culture kids and everybody seems to say something about it is it's offering something different than what American culture is offering at this point and these artists like Super Junior are recognizing that audiences you know want to see themselves represented in their music and they're recognizing where their fan bases are and they're working within those industries to create the best music. But we've seen a lot of missteps. <laughs> like Super Junior's, Super Junior's collaborations in Latin America are the reason that Super Junior is able to do what they do is because they have such a dedicated fan base. for. They've been around for over a decade and their fans are still listening to them and their fans in South America are still you know, coming out in droves to concerts to see them. And we don't have that really in the U.S. There's so much variety and options in the U.S. that they haven't ever toured here, whereas they've had multiple shows in Latin America, like solo concerts. We're talking solo concerts in huge venues that if you told someone, oh, yeah, there's this Korean group and they sang a song with Leslie Grace and they gave Leslie Grace her own set. In K-pop, you don't have openers. You have two and a half hours. Like BTS's concert at City Field was just about two and a half hours of just BTS. And that's what fans want. For Super Junior... Uh, I, I actually went to their Mexico City show because I wanted to see this firsthand and it's a great concert in general. But I went to Mexico City and the show opened up with the producers playing skills, performing a dance set and like hyping up the crowd. And then halfway through the show, Leslie Grace got her own set. So this wasn't just a, you know... Uh, right, lip service. Up. This wasn't just yeah. lip service. This was an actual like, we're going to share our super fame with her. 
Mm-hmm. They were sharing the platform. And then and then when they came to New York for KidCon this summer, Leslie came with them. She performed with them. She did interviews with them. Like, there wasn't just a, you know, let's call up someone in L.A. and get someone to record a track for us. Like, this was, they actually worked together and they did a similar thing. I think it's a little bit less intense of a collaboration with Rake just because... They have a huge fan base of their own also, and they're busy. Not that Lizzie isn't busy, but she's she's one person. It's a lot easier to, to work with one person. Has there ever been a collaboration with a, a Black R&B group or hip-hop or rap group? Yeah, there's been some. Not really groups so much as individuals, though Black Eyed Peas just released a song with CL from 21, and they've worked, Will I Am has worked with K-pop for years, BTS, appeared on this interesting reality show called American Hustle Life a few years ago and I think Coolio was on it. It was either cool it was either Coolio or LL Cool J and I don't remember which one it was offhand. Um there have been there have been some collabs. Like John Legend just released a song with Red Velvet's Wendy called Ridden in the Stars. Oh wow. Yeah, it was a fascinating collaboration and they even like filmed the music video together. Gallant just did something with the boy band Monster X. Like, there is some growth in the diversity of who K-pop artists are collaborating with. Um, but yeah, there is some representation happening. Like, it's not just everybody working with a few white guys. But it is still... Hip-hop in Korea is... I wouldn't say it's counterintuitive to K-pop's popularity because K-pop does incorporate rap and that's one of the criticisms. But the state of hip-hop in the U.S. is that it's innately tied to race and politics. And personally, I think that's kind of something that most Korean artists... Stay away from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in general, it's something I think that's a little bit too fraught with tension I was listening to some Black female K-pop fans and they were saying that they loved K-pop and they were, you know, standing in line for a um, concert, but they just wished that there was a little bit more of themselves in the music in some way. So I feel like collaborations are one way to do that. But I also think what you said before about that it appeals to people who are looking for something outside of traditional American music. So my question for you is kind of like, what do you see? Where do you see K-pop going? Like, what's going to be the next thing in K-pop? So I do think, uh, like you said, it's going to be more representation, whether that's through collaborations. I think it'll first primarily be collaborations and hopefully eventually through actual incorporating members. It's going to start slowly. We'll probably start seeing more biracial K-pop stars who aren't necessarily the other races and Korean and white. I can think of one Latino K-pop star, Samuel, and there was one attempt at incorporating a Black singer into a K-pop girl group. Um, Alexandra Reed was in Rania for a while. So we are seeing companies recognize that fans want to see representation and that representation will only help, uh, that it won't hurt a K-pop group to have somebody who isn't the most Korean person in it. And it's kind of crazy to say this, but right now it's the norm for Chinese artists to be signed by K-pop companies. Japanese artists are still a little bit uncommon. Uh, It's not unheard of, but it's still, I wouldn't say a new thing, but the fact that girl group like twice with nine members, three of them are Japanese, that's very radical for some companies in Korea because appealing to the local audience is also important. And that's something that these companies have to balance, but it doesn't hurt the company at all for the international audience by having more diverse members. So right now we're seeing companies are going, they do these global auditions. And in the past, they used to primarily look towards it's going to sound really bad, but faces that appeal to East Asian audiences. But now we're seeing more and more Thai K-pop stars. I've heard of a few Vietnamese trainees. There's, I know of at least one or two Southeast Asian K-pop singers who have actually become part of groups, just not particularly big ones. And so we're seeing first the diversity of Asian K-pop stars grow. And I, I hope that we're going to see more more diverse uh, representation in K-pop, but the collaborations are probably the move that we're going to keep seeing. Collaborations have always kind of been, they kind of have always been a way for K-pop 
to access audiences that are less seen in K-pop. But now, like with Super Junior, with others that we're seeing, these collaborations are really becoming partnerships. Uh, like BTS and Steve Aoki have worked together three times, and Steve Aoki just released the music video for the song he just did with BTS, Wasted on Me, and the entire cast of the music video was Asian American. It was all Asian American stars, like um, Jamie Chung was in it, a few people from Crazy Rich Asians was in it. We're really seeing K-pop artists share their platform with an increasingly diverse set of creators, and hopefully that's going to be something that we'll continue seeing and not just sharing the platform, but the platform will actually become open enough to incorporate more diverse artists and more diverse understanding of the world. Excellent. Excellent. And Isai, do you have any um, like final thoughts? Is there anything we did not mention about K-pop that people should know? Um, it's two quick things. One, I think if anyone likes Gangnam Style out there, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think Gangnam Style really ruined K-pop for a lot of people because even nowadays when I say K-pop, people automatically think of Gangnam Style. And like many other viral hits, it was soon hated by many. I think Gangnam Style was a vi- I think it, more of a trend than an actual like K-pop song. Mm-hmm. And um, also, a lot of people are trying, like a lot of K-pop idols, well, a few now, are like leaving the K-pop industry to come to America to do their own promotions. Like I know Chris Wu left EXO and is now in America promoting his music in English. And I don't see a problem with that, but it also like makes it seem like they're leaving K-pop behind and starting American music. And I don't know what kind of message that's sending out to other people. But I feel like a lot of um, K-pop idols are trying to like make music in America because the industry in America is also really big. But lots of times they all end up like not making any music in Korean or in Chinese like Chris Wu. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. want to see more like I don't You want to see them you want to see them stay loyal to their original exactly. genre, not to just try to cross over and become another American exactly, cookie yeah. cutter performer. Tamara, what do you think about that? Chris is leaving EXO really opens up this like flesh wound of K-pop of what do you do when K-pop stars want to leave the K-pop industry? And what do you do when they don't necessarily, they don't originate here? So we have people a little less tense than Chris Wu because there's a whole lot of stuff going on with his debut. But when you have someone like Tiffany Young from Girls' Generation, whose contract was up with her company, and now she's in the U.S. pursuing her career. She's an L.A. girl. She's working out of L.A. She's studying acting and also releasing music. And you have someone like Jay Park, who is from Seattle, and he went and pursued a career. He was a boy band member in 2 p.m. for a minute, and now he's, you know, making waves in hip-hop. And even Jackson, he mentioned Jackson Wong from Got7. Like, how do you... How do, how do you, you split? Con- yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you convert? No, no, no. And I mean, it's like, I mean, I think it's a quintessential question for any boy band member who grows up or grows beyond the group. But then you have this added element. It's not just, oh, I've grown up and I want to pursue an independent projects. It's also K-pop is such a huge thing and their fans associate them with this phenomenon. It's, I think, probably doubly hard. You don't want them to just become American English speaking because then they're not what you loved them for in the first place anyway. It definitely takes away a little bit, I think, when... I know, like, a lot of people are the, oh, I love an English version of this song, but when a song's been released originally in Korean, I tend to find the English version, like, kind of comical, which isn't to say that the Korean lyrics aren't comical, and, and like, I do it sounds understand better Korean. It just sounds more, I don't know... It, it sounds, sounds authentic. Like, right. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a whole lot of... I wouldn't say authenticity, but K-pop is <laughs> K-pop is made by multiple people and often does incorporate like European and American songwriters. But it's just like the way that it it comes across. Like I kind of find it a little a little jarring, maybe sometimes when like like Jackson's English stuff is all very good, but it also like kind of makes me laugh. I'm like you're not supposed to be singing in English. Like go sing in Korean, go sing in Mandarin. Like this seems so anachronistic for who you are and what. I position you with in my brain. But I guess that's, you know, like we're in the age of globalization and this is just going to keep growing and growing and we'll probably be seeing more of this. And for some people, it might be a bad thing, but it's also going to open some great opportunities for Korean artists and Asian artists in general. Um, What do you think about the fact that K-pop 
does appeal to people because it is different and people might be able to feel themselves to, they can be themselves listening to K-pop, but it's such a manufactured genre. I mean, there are so many people in the, you know, in the kitchen producing this perfect vision, the music, the producers, like everything is manufactured. Is that problematic or that's just part of the game? I think it's definitely part of the game. Uh, Maybe I'm just like too New York for this, that I think it's totally fine because, you know, you need a whole company to make a successful product. Like you need different people doing different things. And the idols are the front people and it's their, you know, representation of the quote unquote product that the companies are putting together and packaging that people love. And the reason so many groups have a lot of members is because each individual brings something to like the scene. Like, you don't just see nine-member groups because a company is like, oh, we, we have nine people, let's make it. Like, they really work hard to make sure the chemistry among the members works and that they each bring something else to the field. So even though they might not be the people songwriting, or a lot of the times they are nowadays, even if they're not the people saying like, oh, hey, I want to make that music video from my exact perspective, they are collaborators. I hate the criticism that K-pop has no artistic essence to it because are you telling me that InSync and Backstreet Boys went and said to their producers, this is the song we want to sing, I want it that way. Like That's not how we see pop in the U.S. and the criticism comes up so frequently. I think it comes from a really negative place of people trying to say this is so bad about K-pop. Um, like Ishai mentioned before about the appropriation conversation. But I think that when you consider that this is a huge investment from these companies that each star invests so much of their own time to say that they're inauthentic, that they're not artistic is really insulting to these individuals because yes, maybe this band member might not be the best singer, but I bet you that they're probably a really good actor or a really entertaining variety show host who's bringing something to the table. And for many young K-pop stars, now increasingly less actually, because there's such a popularity of K-pop that you could foresee a multi-decade long career. But until recently, most K-pop stars did not expect to be having a career as a singer longer than seven years in a K-pop group. That's like the term limit. Um, that's the contract limit at the moment is seven years between a K-pop company and then they can extend after that. But it was unheard of. Like Super Junior had at its peak depending on who you ask, 13 or 15 members. And each of those members, maybe they weren't all the best singers or the best dancers or the best rappers, but a lot of them are actors. A lot of them are entertainers in South Korea because these K-pop groups are often launching pads for each individual member's artistry. Like if you look at Girls' Generation, a hugely popular girl group, arguably one of the most popular girl groups of all time, their members are all now doing different things. And some of them, yes, are singing and some of them are acting. But one of the most popular singers in South Korea nowadays, one of the most popular female singers in South Korea is Taeyeon. And Taeyeon is a member of Girls' Generation. Like, she is a power vocalist, but she came out of this girl group. And when you look at BTS, like, the members have solo projects, whether it's releasing mixtapes or playlists or acting. And this is not uncommon. K-pop groups are, like, I can't impress this enough, that K-pop groups are part of the entertainment industry and Korea is a platform for these individual entertainers to pursue, to open up perspective in their career. And a lot of them are people who want to pursue music. A lot of them are people who want to pursue dancing or rapping or hip hop or something like if it is involved in the innate nature of K-pop. But a lot of them also, you know, they're models and they learn how to sing and dance and they want to see a future in the industry. So when people criticize K-pop as being inauthentic, First of all, I want to say, like, just look at America. Like, you can't criticize inauthenticity without recognizing that our own pop scene struggles with this to some degree. We just pretend otherwise. That's excellent. That's excellent. I love that answer. So important. Um, I think that you have given us so much to think about. I feel like I understand K-pop a lot more, Tamar. Thank you so much for talking with us today. And thank you, Isai, for sharing your opinions today. Tamar, where can people read some of your work or follow what your um, your commentary on K-pop? So you can read my articles at bulber.com and forbes.com if you're interested in random stuff that I have to say about K-pop. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tamar Wright. And I think your Twitter account is where you 
talk a lot about K-pop. I mean, I, I find your K-pop commentary on your Twitter feed to be very entertaining and informative. So I would definitely recommend people to follow you on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle again? It's at Tamar Wright. So my name T-A-M-A-R, like Tamara uh, without the A, or Tamar, if you're a fan of Tamar Braxton, but it's pronounced Tamar, like tomorrow. Um, Wright, like a writer, W-R-I-T-E-S. Excellent. And Tamar, you have a podcast as well. Is that right? I do. I co-host the Nice Jewish Fangirls podcast where we talk about pop culture and media representation from an Orthodox Jewish perspective. That sounds super interesting and super melting pot. Thanks again for being here, Tamar and Isai. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was a really enlightening conversation. Even though I thought I knew a little something about K-pop, I learned so much from Tamar Herman and my son Isai. My main takeaway, though, is I feel a little guilty that I've listened to the criticisms about K-pop without really understanding what makes it unique. I've judged K-pop through an American lens and not really tried to appreciate it for what it offers, which I've learned today includes not only diverse music, but things like storytelling and world building and the fashion and that accessible connection to a foreign culture. And while issues of cultural appropriation and colorism, I'm sure will keep popping up in the world of K-pop, I still think it's really cool that K-pop idols seem to be listening to their fans and collaborating with artists from other countries and other cultures. I'm looking forward to seeing more of those collaborations. I may not become a hardcore K-pop fan like Tamar or my son, Isai, but I'm definitely going to give K-pop another listen with my melting pot ears wide open. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of My American Melting Pot. If you liked the episode, please consider leaving us a review or rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast so that every new episode is automatically downloaded for you. And if you can't wait for our next episode to drop, you can always visit myamericanmeltingpot.com where we always have fresh new Melting Pot content Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. My American Mounting Pot is recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they don't play K-pop, but they do play jazz and classical music. Our producer and editor is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty and Tyler McClure. Our social media and marketing intern is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening. And remember to always live your life in color. (laughs) 